Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based sciences. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. So today, hello, welcome, unseen viewers of Anecdotal Anatomy and seen viewers who have been showing up to the live events. Thank you for showing up. We've got more in the pipeline. We're really excited for this next year. And today we continue our yoga eight, moving into yoga asana, which is the third limb. We've done the yamas and the niyamas, the ethical moral code of yoga. And now we get to move into the physical practice of yoga. So for those of you who are wondering, maybe you're not a yogi, what asana means. Asana is translated as a body posture. And so what exactly does body posture mean? Maybe in the roots of yoga, the body posture that was being referred to was the posture it takes to sit in meditation. But as with everything else, we grow, we evolve, we expand and become a little bit more inclusive. So let's dive a little bit deeper into asana poses and how they've changed over the years or expanded, I think. Expanded, changed, evolved, you know, what word resonates with you, which one feels aligned with you. I feel like maybe we should start with some of the definitions from master teachers. And I have two of my favorite books here. One is by Richard Freeman called The Mirror of Yoga. And the other is from TKV Desikachar, The Heart of Yoga, which if you are a student of yoga, a teacher of yoga, these two books I think are essentials. Desikachar says that it is primarily the physical, physical aspect of our practice that people see as yoga. Much more important than these outer manifestations, though, he says, is the way we feel the postures and the breath. And so I think that's a really important thing to, to remember. Moving into Richard Freeman, he says there's a famous verse found in one of the Upanishads that he doesn't say one of the Upanishads, but it's in an Upanishad that says that a true yoga posture occurs when meditation flows ceaselessly and spontaneously, implying that yoga asanas encourage the integration of the body and mind. An asana practice does not torture the body physically, nor does it cause distraction to the mind. Instead, asana invites more and more refinement when approached internally. A mindful, concentrated quality of attention is used to create a dynamic, aligned form. The same focus of mind is used to observe the subtleties that arise throughout the body. So we're not separating body and mind, but we're using the body as the tool, which I think is also really important there. You know, the root of the word as, asana, means seat, to sit. It's a posture. It's, it's many different ways that we can come into this that I think, you know, words matter. And when we hear words in different ways, we inhabit the experience according to our own feeling for the word. So he says, the physical practices become our means of watching the process of our own natural intelligence interfacing with reality. I, you know, every single one of his lines could be a fucking master class of yoga. And so, I mean, that could be the entire episode, but it's not going to be. But it's just, an, it's, it's an opportunity to look at the physical practice in different ways rather than just, oh, I'm taking my mat to the studio. I'm going to unfold it and I'm going to move with a bunch of people and it's going to feel really good. And I'm going to come home and think, oh man, this is, this is the jam. It's more than that. And it includes that. It's more and it's everything and it's separate and it's whole. So yoking and putting it all together is really yoga. And I really 
One of the things as you were reading it was this statement, asana, what people see as yoga, and you and I have talked about this uh, in many of our episodes uh, about the eight limbs and that yoga, yes, absolutely includes the movement practice in a variety of different ways that we can dive a little bit more deeply into. There are so many lineages and then growth from within those lineages of different ways of moving. But still, it is only one of the eight limbs. And I think that was a really amazing thing that was in that very first paragraph that you read as people see yoga. So how do we dive a little bit deeper into asana and let it take its its place in the eight limbs, but not be the only limb that's focused on. And, you know, while we talked about the koshas having equal weight in the diagram and how we interface with the different layers of our own experience of our own beings, the yoga asana is a little bit different. I mean, the yoga sutras, which was the first real codification of yoga, when Pantanjali came out and wrote and codified yoga in the yoga sutras, which was many, many, many years after we, that, that the, in the Indus, River Valley, they discovered, you know, pictures of ancient yogis doing yoga postures, you know, so it did exist thousands of years ago uh, that in this book, the Yoga Sutras by Pantanjali, there are 196 of them, little pithy quotes that kind of tell you what yoga is and you kind of go in deeper. Only three of them even directly talk about asana. Only three out of 196. It's, I mean, if, if that gives you a sense of where the weight is on the physical postures. And the most, I mean, they're all in the second book of the, the sutras, if you're reading the Yoga Sutras, 46, 47, and 48 are the chapters. And, but the main one, the one that I would teach in a class or I would use more regularly would be the Stiram Sukham Asanam, which is finding the balance between the effort and the ease. And I'll quote here, asana should be a balance between steady, stable, alert, and effort, which is the stira and a comfortable, easy, relaxed effort, sukham. So sukha and sira, so, but both require effort, which I think is really important to know. Yeah, and framing, you know, ease requiring effort uh, is an interesting concept to dive into. Being a teacher and in front of many classes of people being in asana type classes, which if anybody who is listening has taken one of my classes, they may notice or they may be thinking, of all the teachers I've had, Teresa was probably the least asana-based teacher. I believe in movement. I believe in using the body to gain deeper awareness into how it feels, how it honoring that the movement practice has real value in building strength and flexibility. But again, I'm one of those people who looks at the lineage, honors the lineage. I love so many of the asanas, but I can honestly say I've probably taught two or three full um, Surinamaskar vinyasa type classes where they were linked together in a series of breath and movement. Mine is a little bit different, a little bit slower, and probably a little bit justified more to the ease of movement than maybe a full vinyasa flow class, which is not to say, I want to clarify, is not to say that I haven't seen amazing students, amazing teachers of my own who can move through sun salutations and movement practices with such a beautiful ease to all of their transitions and expression of coming into the practice. And it's all, like you said before, an evolution. So when I think about the path of my yoga experience, I feel like I've gone through the three main female archetypes, the maiden, the mother, and I'm in the crone part. When I first started yoga, I didn't, I mean, I had taken Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism in college. And I think I may have mentioned this, the most boring teacher on the planet. All I did was doodle. It was information I was drawn to. And for what, some reason, I don't know why, maybe it was the Eastern philosophy, you know, that feeling of just diving deeper into the essence of meaning, what is this life about and whatever it may have been. But I didn't really get what I was seeking in that class. So by the time I got to yoga, it was because a friend of mine said, I, you know, you have to take Lippi's class. And so I took Lippi's class. 
But for me at that time, I didn't really make the connection between the asana. I didn't even call it asana. I just called it yoga. I didn't call it yoga asana. It was just yoga. To me, that was asana was yoga. And so I went to the studio and I did the stuff. And, you know, I was never a dancer or a gymnast. So I wasn't there easily moving through. I was very much in that, you know, the maiden part of my life where it, I'm fucking up all the time. I'm learning a ton of shit. And I don't really, my proprioception was off. I didn't, I was lost at sea, but I was in a sea that I was feeling like the water's warm. I like it in here. I'm, I, I'm okay being lost. And I've always been someone who kind of liked being lost anyway. Like, let's, let's just drive and see where we go. And then over time, and we've talked about this too, that sometimes it's the physical that draws you in and then you kind of go deeper. Over time, I sort of um, recognized that in relationship to Om Yoga in New York, the Shambhala Center was right there. So I, my friend Shauna, who was one of our guests, took me there. I brought her to Om. She took me to, to Shambhala. And that began my meditation training. And then to be able to find those connections, to be able to, to weave them and mesh them together became a different kind of practice, but I was still very asana heavy. And my meditation took me a little bit longer to kind of feel into because it was a little more esoteric. It was a little more boring. It had, you know, different stuff. And so then I move into this mother part of my practice where I am, I'm feeling very nurturing. I'm nurturing myself. I'm kind of moving into these different places, I'm allowing the maiden part to, to morph into this motherhood where I feel a little bit more sterified. I'm a little bit more grounded in the practice, but I'm still very much in the mystery of it. And, and the reason I can say that now is because I'm in the crone part where I can recognize that mystery. I don't know if I knew that at the time. I think I was just kind of continuing on the journey. And it's now that I've slowed down a lot. There was a time when I could not imagine doing a gentle class or a slower class because I really, I needed more to feel it in my body so that I could, I mean, not that I was going far, that I'm very flexible, but I needed the stira. I needed to keep going. I needed the sweat. I needed that, that physical action. And now I'm looking back thinking, nah, I really, really love the slow breathing, but that's not where it started. This is how it sort of evolved and become this, because I'm very, I'm pitta, I'm, I'm fiery. I've got, a, I'm very young. I have a lot of, I walked into a, an acupuncture thing the other day with my dear Jenny. And she's like, have you always been this young? <laughs> and I thought, I, yeah, I really have. goes back to that fourth grade story. I'd walk to school every day going, I'm not going to talk today. I'm not going to talk today. Well, those of you who've gotten to know me, <laughs> can you imagine that? And at the same time, silent retreat is, is the thing that nourishes me. So all of these definitions over time that we give ourselves the grace and the space to, to become. And so yoga is, it's like a flowing river. You know, we never step into the same one twice. And we are not the same. It is not the same. And even if we, like, I love the, the, and I'll stop in a second, but I love the practices like Ashtanga that have a series that you do the same ones every time, not because for any, just so that you can see the, the see and feel both. I think it's not bad to see progression or to feel the progression, but to see how we change and we move and things evolve in our bodies. And then we might be able to get to our breath and our thoughts and all the other things that, that make this practice whole. Yeah, we have uh, a different lineage of how we came to yoga. I started, my very first class was very hatha-based. It was not vinyasa with a series of poses that were linked. My teacher had them very individualized and without this specific transition where they're linked in the way that they are in the vinyasa class. But still, I always felt like I was lagging behind that. Even in that, I felt like people were moving too fast. And I always felt myself wanting to just stay in the pose just a little bit longer to be able to feel it and explore it. And then my journey led me to vinyasa. And again, I love the practice. It was such an experience for me to be able to start to really think in terms of not only linking the postures together, but this real concentration on linking breath to movement to gather up that energy to express it in a flow. And the flow for me really seemed to be that first step in to getting into my mind through my body. And I found that to be really, really fascinating that when I did get into the flow and was moving, it 
transitioned beyond my body and I was really able to feel more clear in my thoughts, both on the mat and as I left. What stayed with me for long periods of time was conditioning the body in a specific order to get to a peak pose, that there were steps that needed to be taken to prepare, to warm, to get the body moving so that we could continuously move to maybe more challenging poses by conditioning the body in certain ways. And I think, you know, that's what I read in the lineage too, that asanas were a way to condition the body to sit longer in meditation. But my real calling is gentle and yin. I like moving slow. I like holding a pose for enough time for all of my body to be able to experience it, to notice that the very first thing that might call my attention when I'm in a pose, maybe it's my low back or whatever area it is, but when I had the time to sit with it and notice it, that's when patterns started to go bing, bing in my head. And I started to really feel beyond what the first sensation was and start to see the patterns that I had in my body. So in opposition to, you know, some of the things that you said about really loving to be fast and moving and in the game, I was being in the game. I just like to stroll through it. Well, and um, it's changed over time. I mean, that's the whole thing is the whole, the honoring of the energies as they shift. And the energies may be more subtle and in a shift from, from your end. Mine were pretty dramatic because I'm so young. The idea of slowing down seemed incomprehensible to me back then. Today, it is very much a part of, I don't take public classes anymore. I do my yoga asana on my own and I do it every day and it is slow. I don't do the vinyasa in the, the transition, you know, from, you know, sort of high plank to low plank, plank up dog down dog. I don't do that anymore. At least in my sadhana. I, you know, once in a while I may just drop into yoga, you know, just do a down dog in my living room or something. But it's, it's the, the exploration of self that really gets down to yoga. But we're talking about asana today as the tool within the yoga structure. And to be clear, like there are lineages that come from master teachers you know, like we come from, you know, Krishnamacharya, Desika Char, we've got Iyengar, Patabi Joyce, like we've got this lineage of teachers. And I think that, uh, and I might be wrong on this, but I think Krishnamacharya taught Iyengar and Patabi Joyce. And Patabi Joyce created the Ashtanga um, style of yoga. I don't know if we can call it a style or a lineage, because I'm not sure exactly. It might thread through. And then Iyengar sort of slowed it down and, you know, really alignment-based Hatha experience. So like these two very different styles came from the same lineage. So I'm curious, and I'm not even exactly sure what delineates a lineage from a style of yoga. I'm thinking goat yoga is probably a style of yoga, you know, not so much a lineage. However, it's still, as long as it honors the seed of yoga is that the, the actual intentions, I don't really give a shit. I have people say, oh, goat yoga. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, you know what? Bring a goat in if you want to, as long as the, the asana, the yoga, the experience that's being offered is in alignment with you know, the intentions of yoga. So I'm not so much a purist in that way, but I do think that it's, it's an interesting conversation to have as we kind of look at what are, what are the marketing things? You know, what are the things that we use to market yoga, which is, not a, which is not unique to the United States. It's not unique to Western culture. I think we both read an article and I had heard a teacher a while ago talk about that when the British were colonizing India, that from the palace, they wanted to popularize yoga. So they sent 12-year-old Indian boys into little vi villages to perform the, you know, acrobatics and whatever. So, you know, this idea of selling, of marketing is not unique to us. And do we romanticize the, the practice because it comes from a different culture? And then this idea of appropriation. So like there's so many things that can come into the conversation, but I think we want to keep it to us enough. But, you know, like everything else, they're all connected. Like it's hard to talk about one thing exclusive of all the others, but we can focus on it. Yeah, because movement is, I think movement is a doorway that many people use when they first come to yoga. You know, especially 
well, I, I shouldn't say especially, oftentimes in the past, yoga was looked at as some sort, like you mentioned this earlier, gymnastics, gymnastic-like positions to condition the body. And there's a lot of respect. I, I have a lot of respect for whatever part of yoga is the part that touches somebody's life and says, that looks really interesting and I need to find out more. Whatever that first doorway is, doorway in is to the lifestyle of yoga is an amazing first step in so many different ways. And most people, myself included, came to yoga because of that gymnastic-like movement. I came because I wanted my body to move and feel what it felt like to have long, lean muscles and to be able to stretch and have flexibility and strength simultaneously. That was my jump-in point of yoga. And then as I embraced it with a little bit of wonder and beauty, I fell into the science of our body. What is happening? What is? What are the movements that are going on? Where do they originate? How do I express them? And as a massage therapist and body worker who simultaneously was began to study the two together, it's interesting that I moved so much into yin when a lot of what I do is observe how people move, especially when they're moving fast and or holding a shape to look at patterns in uh, when I'm watching my students in asana. And it's a puzzle for me to look and say, okay, I see that there's a little bit of struggle there. I see that there's not as much ease as there could be. Where is the glitch? Where are they getting caught up? Where is the reduction in the range of motion that is maybe encouraging this student to put a little bit too much effort into getting to a specific expression of a pose rather than the opposite to lean Too much exertion in. effort, not, yeah. not, not ease effort. Yes. Like the effort of ease, which now that I've read that, I can't like let that go. There's you know, everything requires some effort, but that comes into the energy field, you know, in the sense that what is the energy of the effort? Is it one of overexertion or one of over ease? How can we find that balance? But I love taking your classes. I always felt really very well cared for. I felt like I came into your class. I mean, I, I met you at the Prancing Peacock 2010 when you were my anatomy teacher. And I had been practicing yoga for about 12 years before I even stepped foot into that yoga studio. And still, it wasn't, I was still not, you know, bringing all the pieces together. There was still such a, an acute sense of curiosity about all of this. There still is. I mean, it doesn't really wane. It just kind of, it changes direction a little bit. But one of the things, and I've said this to you before, is I know that you have many lineages and many things that you've studied, but your wisdom of the body that is separate from that, and I will say because from whatever you learned through massage school and the other things that sort of inform your knowledge of the body, it contains the seed of the intention of yoga, even when it, you can't find it in any yoga book. Like it might not be found in you know, one of the journals or whatever, it comes from a place of wisdom that is still honoring the energy and intentions of yoga, which I think is so beautiful. And it makes your students feel well cared for. I think that's the role of a teacher, right? To continue to learn, honor all of the lineages, and then share what we've learned in kind and compassionate ways. So what I really liked when you were talking about the effort of ease that whole concept has captured my attention in such a way that I think about it often, the effort of ease. And we today, again, we can't separate all of these different limbs. But when I think of the practice of movement as a practice of adopting the effort of ease, maybe that is a foundation of the ease it takes to move into some of the other practices. Like the ease that we need to be in meditation. I have so many people who've said, I can't meditate. I can't sit still that long, which I think is uh, still a question of uh, Why mastering. <laughs> yeah, mastering the effort of ease to be able to say, if I can find ease in my movement practice, which is number three, if we're going to order them, I always wonder 
is that a stepping stone to the easing of sitting for the brain? That if we can go through some of these movement practices and find that coordination of breath and movement and come into what some people will call a meditative state while they're moving in an asana practice, is the practice of that ease transferable into some of the next limbs that we'll be talking about? I would say yes. I would say I don't think they're separate. One of the things that I had read, and I think we talked about a little bit earlier, was that, you know, the yamas and the yamas are the first two limbs. And who has it? Oh, who wrote it? I can't remember where it is. It's either, I don't know. But it says that you can't practice niyamas. I think it was Iyengar. Can't practice niyamas. You can practice meditation. You can practice asana. You can practice pranayama. These are the tools that we use to access the space. Someone comes up to you and says, be content. Well, how? What do I do? Well, we move our bodies. We move our breath. We move our minds. I was particularly, and this goes back to something you said before, I don't know if it was about the different energies and qualities of a teacher, um, BKS Iyengar, who we can't have this conversation without at least bringing him into it. But this is one of my favorite quotes of his. He says, when I practice, I'm a philosopher. When I teach, I'm a scientist. When I demonstrate, I'm an artist. I mean, I, I think that that if we can philosopher, scientist, artist, I mean, these are lofty kind of titles. <laughs> you know, not all of us, I don't resonate with the science, the science, the scientist piece, but as a teacher, I am looking at bodies. I am using whatever skills and gifts and tools that I have to, to work the room um, and to, to bring people into more ease. And I'll say, you know, as someone who kind of did not approach asana in the same way as, as you did, Teresa, I've had a few more blind spots, a few more. I, I just didn't, I, I, I was just showing up and doing it. I didn't even have a why in the beginning. It wasn't, I was doing it because I just showed up because Katrina told me I should. And I had a feeling that I wanted to continue. And it was the feeling that kept me returning, but it, you know, it wasn't specific. It wasn't because I wanted this or that. And, you know, the room in a New York City beginner's class in the late nineties, I mean, it was populated with ex-New York City ballerinas who are trying to like reclaim their bodies in some ways. But what I've learned over time is in terms of asana, that this idea of alignment, you know, for a while we were just kind of flowing and, and, and at home it was very much alignment. We had, you know, that was it. And then I left and uh, came here and it was much more flowy and we didn't spend a lot more as much time, you know, at the alignment. And then I did another, went to another place. And it was much more alignment. So going from alignment-based vinyasa flow to, you know, hatha, which is alignment-based, more slow, like you said, distinct. What I found was that the alignment piece really mattered. And it didn't matter because a teacher was saying, make sure that you have your knee over your ankle because that's, you know, whatever that is. But the teachers who really saw me and were able to come over to me and work with me individually as part of the collective, like our mission is to is to connect the individual to the collective. And our, our challenge as yoga teachers today is to teach the individual in a group setting. So it's very similar what we've been doing. But that once, you know, we had a teacher who used to adjust, she would come over and she would put your, her hands on you where she intuitively felt that there was a misalignment. She didn't torque you into a position, but your body would melt into that position from the power of her touch. And I found that when she did that, I could find my own alignment and the effort of that ease became much more palpable. There are other teachers who are very skilled hands-on who like Doris is very skilled for me. Like when she would come over and move me into something, I was in a class with Rodney and Colleen and I don't even have to say their last names because you probably know who they are if you're yogis. And Rodney would like lift me up into a down dog where I felt like I was flying and Colleen would do the same thing. And there was a sense of flight with very little effort, but still enough effort to maintain the shape. And when a teacher can do that, can see the individual and bring you into that space in your body, it's, it's bliss. It is that central kosha. It is Ishvara Pranidhana. It is the surrender into that piece. It is everything all at once. And then we hopefully get to be able to find our own alignments on our own. Yes, there are teachers who I've had teachers put their hands on me and it felt like crap. And it was like, get your fucking hands off me. I had one teacher who once I said, and she's an incredible teacher, but she was trying to bring me into a cobra that with her hands on my shoulders. And I told her my low back is hurting. 
I'm having pain. This hurts. And she was like, you know, no, you know, like she kept bringing me further. And I, I did not go back to her class. I respect her as a teacher, but I did not respect how she treated me as a student in that moment. So this is discernment. We find our teachers. We find those people who help us inhabit our own bodies with our own alignment that is different than the person next to us. Judith Lassiter, she was the one who brought me into alignment in triangle and trikonasana, which has been my nemesis for years. She came over any time I was in a public class or in a class with a national teacher. Rodney did the same thing, came right over to me. Judith came right over to me. There were like 75 people in the room and they found my triangle because it was, <laughs> it was out of alignment. And, but Judith was the one who was able to you know, reimagine the pose for me, for my body. It has become my champions. So the body, it's a crazy thing. It is a crazy thing with so many possibilities for movement. And you touched on some amazing points. The most recent that you just said that really struck me was reimagine the pose for my body. And I think that is such an important thing. Uh, if, if As we look around to all the other humans that walk this earth, there are so many body types and yoga is accessible to all. And alignment is a really important part of making yoga asana non-injurious. But even alignment isn't a one-size-fits-all alignment. And I think that's really where those great teachers come from. They're the people who are lifelong students who continue to learn and build upon their foundational knowledges in 200-hour programs, which are amazing. I'm not saying anything, but they are the stepping stone like everything else. They're the first step on our way to be labeled a teacher to share this information with others. And those that continue to practice, those like Nicole, who know that subtle awareness takes the adjustment from her subtle hand and her subtle touch and the, her, her, she had such an innate ability to bring awareness to an area, but by doing so, the student or me as a student when I was in her class, just like you were, allowed me to feel where that was and to start to conceptualize and understand how I needed to change my body to become more in alignment because she brought my awareness to a place that was out of alignment. Yoga has so many things. Yoga asana has so many different ways that it's been reported. Remember years ago when there was a lot of press about does yoga hurt the body or does it heal the body? And yes, yes and yes, <laughs> they're, just... they're both so depending on how you're using it, when you're using, uh, what parts of asana you're using, you know, and do you have, and this goes back to why I like to hold my poses for a long time and find that ease in the pose, that balance of effort and ease is that sometimes we're leaving the class. I've had students tell me, I leave the class and my low back hurts. Now, I'm not in the class with you to find out if I can see something that might have your low back being misaligned. However, if you're leaving a class on a regular basis and a part of the body is feeling discomfort, then maybe that's the signal to slow it down a little bit and to be able to find the ease in the effort so that it can reveal itself where that misalignment is, not only from the teacher who is in the classroom with you watching your movement and your own, but from the most important teacher you have, and that is self. To and, you know, it's when we have patterns in our body, Sometimes it's hard to see that thing. And I love that you think that holding the postures brings the ease. I've been holding for nine full breaths, which is 90 seconds. I have a 10 second breath, five in, five out. And I remember you saying it takes 90 seconds to soften the posture, to create that, that change. And it's very yin, I know, to kind of stay a little bit longer. But even in triangle, even in you know my, my warriors, I've been holding them and I'm trem trembling by the end. It, the longer I hold the pose, the harder it gets. 
that the slowing down doesn't make it easier. It may bring different awareness and it may bring a different sense, but the effort for the ease is much more exertive the longer I hold it so that it begins to kind of, it, it's just an interesting conversation. And when you talked about, does it hurt or help? Are you using your pencil to write the great American novel or are you using it to stab someone in the jugular? Like, you know, I mean, yes, <laughs> everything has the possibility to help or heal water. It is necessary to live and it can drown you. Fire can cook your food so that you have no bacteria and it can burn your house down. So yes, everything has the possibility to in the positive and the negative. And then that's what we are. That's the conversation we have, though, which is always comes back to Sira and Suka and fucking discernment. Like these are the things that are the drivers for me. And I think they're both born out of personal awareness or they evolve into more of a practice and an understanding as our personal awareness expands. Because I run a massage practice with yogis for uh, an awful lot of uh, for many, many years without aging myself too much. So for many years, I've had a lot of yogis who uh, have been on my table. I've also taught a fair amount of group classes with people who will say things like, I have to do my down dog with the shoulder injury because I have to do my yoga. And a lot, it's not. That's not yoga. Right, exactly. If you are in pain and you know you have an injury. Ahimsa. Yes. Ahimsa comes in. Look at us doing throwbacks to a couple of episodes previous to this one. But it is. Even the movement practice is a way to deepen our body awareness and to not become so attached to any specific type of movement practice to know that there are so many different ways to express it. There's slowing down. There's holding it until those 90 seconds. There is coming into yin. We have restorative. There's just so many different ways that yoga, asana can be practiced even if the body has an injury in it. We don't have to go into down dog with a shoulder injury because down dog fits into a sequence that's being taught. And I've been in classes with extremely skilled teachers who have so many different options and modifications to offer for somebody who has that shoulder injury, different ways, dog at the wall, um, you know, to take some other modification to honor the injury that somebody is feeling within their body and to encourage that student to make that modification which doesn't always mean that the student accepts the offer. Right. It's the, student, it's the student's yoga. You're the guide, the teacher. I remember Joanna was in my class one day and her down dog was really short. And I was like, come into plank and then into down dog. And she's like, well, Teresa told me that for my body, I need to do this. I was like, well, if Teresa told you, then you do you. Like Teresa's got you covered. She's good. But I will say this, and I think this is going to be controversial for some people and not everyone. Some people are going to be like, yeah. And some people are going to be like, no, because... Our egos have to protect us. I have taught both on and off the mat. And I will say I didn't really begin teaching until I taught off the mat. You know, I led classes. I led fun classes. People loved my classes. They came, even if they hated my music, some came back because I played the Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin. And some people were like, I don't like your music, but I love your class. So I'm fun. I'm performative. I, I like to joke. I'm, I'm a different kind of teacher. But I don't think I really, really started teaching until... I had an injury and my whole goal was to get off the fucking mat so I could teach off the mat. In New York, I don't think there was ever a teacher who taught on the mat. And I thought, I'm not seeing my students. I think I am. I'm doing practices that I can do because I'm teaching and I'm, I'm showing them. I'm demonstrating. I'm doing things that fit, you know, the things I like or the things that are not part of my injuries or whatever. But that doesn't serve the class that shows up. That only serves the teacher it might have some residual, you know, effect and people kept coming back. It feels good. But was that really my practice as a teacher is teaching. It's not doing the practice. So in order to kind of teach myself to teach off the mat, my friend Risha was in the teacher training and she demonstrated while I taught because I had an injury and I didn't want to stop teaching. So she performed the, the asanas while I taught from the sidelines. And then I was able to kind of move my way into it. And being able to walk around the room, even though I don't think I am a highly skilled adjuster, 
So I was very discerning about when I would put my hands on people's bodies and always asked for consent. Judith Lassiter asked every person every time in every class, she would you know, ask, is it okay if I touch you? And even if you'd said yes before, she asked you again. So this idea of consent, but walking around the room and actually seeing the bodies, even if I didn't know how to teach the modification, I could see something was misaligned and I could go home and I could study it. I could ask Teresa. I could ask, you know, one of my other mentors. And so it's as a teacher who really wanted to evolve and serve the class, that was really important to me. And I know there are plenty of really fun, engaging guides who teach from the mat, who do a wonderful job with what they do. And I wonder what would happen if that teaching came off the mat. I taught a class called the Issues in the Tissues, something more therapeutically based. Yeah. Everybody who came had something. And so a lot of different cueing, a lot of different modifications. You know, I, ideally in a therapeutic class, everybody who came might have the same thing. You know, they might have a shoulder injury or they all might have a low back discomfort. But it was not the case. Everybody had something a little bit different. And I thought I was doing, and I probably was, doing a really nice job teaching a class called Issues in the Tissues with modifications and props and subtle adjustments. I always do subtle adjustments because I want people to be able to understand the adjustment and how to execute it. But what happened was after about 10, 15 classes of teaching Issues in the Tissues, I fell and broke my arm. And I came into the class in a sling with broke arm broken in two places and broken ribs. And I was teaching at the Prancing Peacock at the time. And Liz was like, you don't have to come. Like, I can get a sub. And I said, my class is called Issues in the Tissues. If I don't show up because I have an issue, <laughs> what kind of message is that? The reason that people are supposed to, or uh, not supposed to, the reason that people choose to come to this class is because they do have an issue. It was during that 10 weeks of teaching while I was healing, while my arm was in a sling, that I really, really gained a much, much more personal experience of not being able to express yoga asana in the way that it was in my thoughts and in my mind and the way that I had learned it. And to ask my body to really, really be clear in its communication with me on what I could and could not do in my practice. And how would I be able to feel like I had a movement practice with half of my body kind of beat up and injured? It was one of my best teachers was breaking my arm. I also wound up with surgery on a hand that took away a lot of the poses that I was so accustomed to having as part of my practice. And even though conceptually, I always knew yoga is for everybody and there is something that we can all do in a classroom setting, no matter what the injury might be, that even if we just come to an asana class for that collective, for the energy, for simple movement in of whatever fits in, that's really joining the individual to the collective. And it would be, I find it so amazing when somebody comes to a class and says, can I have a chair? Or will come up and say, this is what's going on in my body. And they are there. They show up so that they can participate at whatever level their body is going to allow them to participate in that class. I had a student with MS and she needed to have her fan there. She always had a chair, always had extra props. And she said showing up and she always had the same spot so she could be by the wall and have that corner spot. And for a good amount of time before the MS took over a little bit more, she said that was how she kept her body in movement. I want to offer a practice because I think, you know, with all of this talk about asana and the body and movement practice, if you were to ask me, you know, my favorite pose has not changed. With all of the other changes, my favorite pose has always been Tadasana. And even though triangle's now my champion, Tadasana is the precipice from which all of the other poses go. And there's, I'm going to say with my new language, it is a threshold practice. It is the threshold 
that we get to meet before we get to do anything else. If standing in Tadasana, mountain pose, there's not, I'm not asking you to do anything else. So stand with your feet, either toes together, heels a little bit separate. Maybe your feet are together. Maybe they're hip width apart. But stand and maybe roll to your inner big toe and inner heel and then roll to your outer edge, the baby toe and the outer heel. Roll in and out, up and back a little bit so that you can find balance on the four corners of your feet. Four corners, three arches. Could be from the pinky toe to the big toe and then the triangle down to the heel or those four corners. But find balance. Stand nice and tall. Engage your core. Draw your navel in just a little bit and lift up on pelvic floor. Just enough. So stira and sukha here too. Effort and ease. You're not clenching your pelvic floor to keep, you have to pee really bad. And you're like, mm. it's a gentle hold, a gentle drawing in of the navel in and up. Drop the shoulders back and down. Lift as if from the crown of the head, there's a gentle pull toward the heavens as your tailbone anchors down toward the ground, as if your tailbone were a plug and the outlet were in the ground. So these oppositional forces drawing you up and down, shoulders draw down, head draws up. Notice those places in your body where there's an ascension energy and a descension energy, descending and ascending energies so that you can feel that wholeness of pull and that nice long posture. Allow your arms to drop by your sides, but give your hands about a foot, maybe half a foot from your body, palms facing out. So first they face out. This is anatomical neutral. If you were lying on the ground, you'd be in Shavasana, in that grand. So just take a moment in that mountain pose with the palms facing out. And then after a few breaths and at your discernment, just turn your palms gently inward to face the body. Keep the shoulders rolled open. So the, uh, from the elbow up, there's an external rotation. And from the elbows down, there's a slight internal rotation. And if you are someone who is sensitive to energy, you may feel the energy of your body bouncing off the palms of your hands. You may feel a tingling. You may feel some sensation. If not, don't worry about it. You may be focused on something else. There may be some other sensation or experience or thought drawing your attention. Go there. Be curious about what that is. And it will change every time you show up because asana, like the river, you never step into the same one twice. Even in Tadasana, something as simple as Tadasana. Do that as you wake up. Do that before you go to sleep. Meet the thresholds of your day standing in Tadasana. That is the offering. A beautiful offering because Tadasana is the foundation of all asanas. And I always talk about Tadasana as well as how we take it off the mat. It's kind of our walking around pose. It's our way of really feeling our uprightness with intention. You said simple. I think it is. But not simple, easy. Simple but and not easy are different. Yes, it yeah. is not easy based on how we live our lives and all of our forward flexion. But imagine ooh, walking around and everyone that you see having that strength and ease of a mountain, the mountain pose. And it's one of the things about Tadasana that's always captured my attention because Tadasana in its translation is mountain pose. And I love being outside. I like being in the mountains. And there's something that really always struck me about a mountain and mountain pose. From a distance, you see the strength and the execution. If you see a mountain off in a distance, it's rock, it's hard, it's solid, and it appears to have no movement really in it. However, <laughs> yes, if you step into the mountain and on the trail, all the elements show themselves. There's breezes that are coming through the air and slight movement in the trees. There's a waterfall and the flow of water that's going through. The birds and the animals are moving in that space. So in the same way that mountain pose can look static in its expression, there's so many subtle movements that go on in the body while we're practicing this pose. So many opportunities for both the strength and the movement, for the static 
and the flow to, to be a part of that pose. Beautiful offering. Thank you. Like the circulation is like the water flowing. Breath is like the breeze. There's always animation in the body. So as still as we get, like the mountain, there's always going to be that also kind of movement. But I also think about when I think of mountains is their millennia old age, you know, that they are witnesses to all of the more overt and covert changes over time, that they they withstand all of that. That is sort of even with the changes in the body as we move from maiden to mother to crone, with all of those changes, we are still the body. We are still, we can still inhabit the mountain pose. And we've also gotten that part of the witness. We've been able to, if we get to a certain point in our lives, witness all that came before. And I just, I love that. It is Stira and Sukha in, in a pose, like it, it, it exemplifies it in some way. And I love that that image and seeing even the the babbling brooks that are bringing the water flow and the nesting birds and you know and the sly fox and all the the other stories that are told within the mountain like the stories of the body the story the body holds the story the body tells the story the mountain holds the story the mountain tells you're hearing this on the 22nd or somewhere we're recording it i don't know when you're hearing it but merry christmas happy hanukkah happy kwanzaa Happy, well, we'll get to New Year at some other point, but happy holidays to all, however you celebrate, however you call it, whatever it is. It is a season of generosity, of love, of compassion, of giving, and that doesn't need a title, but, you know, love from us to you always. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.